Standing on the platform of truth. Pioneer Health and Missions. Hello, everyone. My name is Mike Casey, and I'm with Pioneer Health and Missions. I'd like to thank all of you for being with us here today, and I'd like to welcome all of you who are watching from the comfort of your home or wherever you may be watching. It's a pleasure to have you here with us today. Today's message is on the seven churches, and we are going to be asking the question, who are really the ones in Laodicea? And I think the answer might be surprise quite a few of you out there. We're going to be looking at Revelation 2 and 3 and also Revelation 14 and 18. And we're going to be using the King James Version. We're also going to be hearing from the Seventh-day Adventist pioneers. Now, this is going to add a whole other level of intrigue because we are going to be hearing firsthand from those who were the beginnings of the Church of Philadelphia. They came out of Sardis and they witnessed Laodicea come out of them. So... I think you're going to be quite interested in what you're going to be hearing. Now, we're going to be hearing from any pioneers. I may not have the time and for the sake of flow of things to keep everything flowing to mention the pioneer specifically who maybe made the statement that we'll be reading or its location, but it's going to be listed right here. So I encourage you to go home and study, read it in this full context because I think you'll be richly blessed. Also, the spirit of prophecy will be listed in blue text. So that kind of will help keep you on track to what we're reading as we go. You'll see here a church sitting on a hill down this long, narrow road. And though we're speaking on the seven churches, you'll notice it's just one single church sitting up there on that hill. And that's where we want to be. There's only going to be one church standing worthy to meet our Lord and Savior when he comes in the clouds of glory. And that's where we want to be. Our opening scripture today is from Revelation 3, 12 through 13. And I'm going to read that now. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Him that hath an ear, let him hear. Let him that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Those who can, may we please kneel for a word of prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you for the opportunity to speak today, and I thank you for bringing us all together to listen to your word. Dear Lord, I pray that all those that are listening, you will give understanding and draw nearer to you. I pray that you will speak through me, dear Lord. May my words be your words, and I pray that you will guide my thoughts in a direction that you will have me to go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Seven Churches. These seven churches should be understood as representing seven conditions of the Christian church in seven periods of time, covering the ground of the entire Christian age. And that's what we're going to be covering here today. We're going to be covering the conditions of the seven churches over this entire Christian age, as well as the influence of paganism and the four angels' messages. Ephesus, the first church. Ephesus signifies desirable chief. This was true of the first age of the church in the apostles' days. They had received the doctrine of Christ pure from the mouth of the great teacher, and the Holy Spirit was poured out and rested upon them. So we see the first church of Ephesus begins with the teachings of Christ. The timeline of Ephesus. The time covered by the first church may be considered the period from the resurrection of Christ to the close of the first century or to the death of the last apostles. So we see Ephesus begins with the teachings of Christ and goes through the lifespan of the apostles. Smyrna, the second church. 
In these times of pagan persecution, the Roman law was, no man shall have for himself particular gods of his own. No man shall worship by himself any new or foreign gods unless they are recognized by the public laws. So we see here already pagan influence onto the churches. And whenever we see paganism mentioned, almost always, it is in reference to false gods of worship, forced worship to these false gods. The timeline of Smyrna. Smyrna signifies myrrh, fit appellation for the church of God while passing through the fiery furnace of persecution and proving herself a sweet-smelling savor unto him. But we soon reach the days of Constantine, when the church presents a new phase rendering a different name and another message applicable to her history. According to the foregoing application, the date of the Smyrnian church would be A.D. 100 to 323. Pergamus, the third church. Now, Pergamus represents the time of Constantine, or more specifically, doctrines set up under Constantine, established under Constantine during this period of time. The doctrines complained of Pergamus were, of course, similar in their tendency, leading to spiritual adultery and an unlawful connection between the church and the world. Out of the spirit was finally produced the union of civil and ecclesiastical powers, which culminated in the formation of the papacy. So we see here the doctrines established under Constantine culminated into Catholicism or was the setting up of Catholicism. The doctrines of Pergamus set up by Constantine. Unquestionably, the first law, either ecclesiastical or civil, by which the sabbatical observance of that day is known to have been ordained, is the Edict of Constantine, 321 A.D. What this is speaking of here is the Sabbath being changed from the biblical Sabbath of the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week, Sunday. And this was one of the doctrines set up under the reign of Constantine. And here's another one. Most of us are aware of the one on the Sabbath, but not everyone is aware that the doctrine of the Trinity was also established under the reign of Constantine. Let's read about it. The doctrine of the Trinity, which was established in the church by the Council of Nice, A.D. 325, this doctrine destroys the personality of God and his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The infamous measures by which it was forced upon the church, which appear upon the pages of ecclesiastical history, might well cause every believer in that doctrine to blush. To blush. This is J.N. Andrews. So as we can see here, the Seventh-day Adventist pioneers were not Trinitarian. They came out of Trinitarianism, and they made their stand with the Father and Son. And we're going to learn a little bit more of that as we go. One particular doctrine becomes central to Catholicism. The mystery of the Trinity is the central doctrine of the Catholic faith. Upon it are based all other teachings of the Catholic Church. And that's the handbook of today's Catholic. Now, it's important to note that with any religion, the God or gods we worship, worship is the central doctrine. That is the key to that religion. That is the, the center of all other doctrines. Everything flows from that. These pagan doctrines are still prevalent today. Where Satan's seat is, it was following the supposed conversion of Constantine that the floodgates of error were opened and every form of false doctrine was brought in. Constantine was nothing but a heathen to the day of his death. His so-called conversion was wholly an affair of, pol of political policy. Nearly every false doctrine in the Roman church today and very many still retained in Protestant churches came direct from paganism and were brought into the church at that time. Truly it was where Satan's seat was and is. So we see here these false doctrines, predominantly the Trinity, as we are seeing, 
because this is the central doctrine that they're believing. It is central to the Roman Catholic Church, and we'll see that it remains central to Protestantism. Great strides are made in Protestantism. They turn a great corner, but they never let go of this pagan practice. The timeline of Pergamus. Pergamus signifies very earthy, elevated. This period reached from Constantine about 313 down to the rise of, the, of Antichrist, about 538. And that was James White. Now, Thyatira, the first church. Now, I mean the fourth church, I'm sorry. Thyatira represents Catholicism. So just a brief recap. The doctrines under Constantine set up Catholicism. And that is Thyatira. That is represented by Thyatira. If the period by the Pergamus church has been correctly located, terminating with the setting up of the papacy or Catholicism, A.D. 538, the most natural division to be assigned to the church of Thyatira would be the time of the continuance of this blasphemous power through the 1260 years of its supremacy from A.D. 538 to A.D. 1798. So, A.D. 538, we see the, the culmination or the, the coming to power of Catholicism. So what was so significant about 538 A.D.? In 538 A.D., the Arian believers, now, who are the Arian believers? These are the believers of the Father and Son. They're still clinging to the beliefs of Ephesus, the apostles. They're still believing in the teachings of the Father and Son. They are denying the Trinity. So we'll start again at the beginning. In 538 A.D., the Arian believers were completely wiped out by the Catholic Church, or so they believed, leaving the papacy as the sole corrector of heretics. Anyone opposing the Catholic teaching of what? The Trinity was exterminated for the mystery of the Trinity is a central doctrine of the Catholic faith. Wow. So what this is telling us is they believe they wiped out the, wiped out the last of the believers of the Father and Son. The Trinity is now the law of the land. And this is what gives them power. This is the birth of the mother of harlots. This is the Babylon spoken of. God's people are never truly wiped out. Individuals who recognize the leadings of the Spirit gathered in little companies hidden away in the caves, mountain fortresses, and dens like the prophets of God in the days of Jezebel. In these secluded spots were thousands who did not take the need to bell. But unto you I say, and unto the rest of Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine of Jezebel. Now, what is the doctrine of Jezebel? It's the taking the knee to bell. Now, who is Bell? Who is being represented here from what we've just read? It's the Trinity doctrine. It's the pagan practice of, it's the false worship of the Trinity doctrine. And that is what is represented here. Thyatira begins giving birth to Sardis or Protestantism. Now, we're not quite to Sardis yet. What we're seeing now is Protestantism coming out of Catholicism or Sardis coming out of Thyatira. So let's read a little bit about this. Now, there was some great strides made. We don't want to hold anything against Protestantism. We would not be here if it wasn't for the great strides made from those before us, turning that corner, but they never did quite let go of many of the errors that were held by Catholicism. The age was not ripe for the fullness of truth, but as watchmen of the night held the dawn when the morning star arises, so the early reformers from Wycliffe to Luther and his contemporaries opened the scriptures and the first rays of light brought joy and gladness to those who sat in darkness. James White on the Reformers. The greatest fault we can find in the Reformation is the Reformers stopped reforming. Had they gone on and onward till they had left the last vestige of the papacy behind, such as natural immortality, 
the sprinkling, the Trinity, and Sunday keeping, the church would now be free of her unscriptural errors. Again, we see the Seventh-day Adventist pioneers were non-Trinitarian, and they did not hold to this practice. They came out of that practice under the call of the second angel's message, as we're going to soon see also. So the SDA pioneers were non-Trinitarian. Let's read about that. The, that most of the leading SDA pioneers were non-Trinitarian in their theology has become accepted Adventist history. Either the pioneers were wrong and the present church is right, or the pioneers were right and the present Seventh-day Adventist church has apostatized from biblical truth. And that's from one of the most leading the Trinitarian books that the corporate Seventh-day Adventist church has today in its possession. So there's nothing hidden here. This is, this is fact. Harsh words to Thyatira and her daughters. We're still on Thyatira right now. We just took a little side note. Thyatira is Babylon itself. Actually, we're still on Sardis, I'm sorry. And we're speaking of the daughters coming out of her. But Thyatira is Babylon itself. Now, Thyatira, which is Babylon, which is Catholicism, will always be mentioned in Revelation 17 as the mother of harlots. That doesn't change. This, will, this holds true, but we're reading about her daughters now. So Thyatira is Babylon itself, and the church is spoken of elsewhere as daughters of Babylon will meet the same fate of the mother, Thyatira. For when the history of all churches is over, Babylon and her daughters will be destroyed in the lake of fire. So we see as Protestantism comes out of Catholicism, they are the daughters of Catholicism. They are the daughters of Babylon. Their fate is the same. The fate is the same. They made great strides, but they didn't turn away from false gods of worship. And it all starts with the God we worship. Thyatira goes until the coming of Christ. This is the first church which is pointed forward to the second coming of Christ. Are there Catholics among us today? Yes, there is, right? Will there be Catholics among us when Christ comes? Why, certainly. So yes, Thyatira does go to the end. Catholicism will remain all through the ages. They will pass through all these times. But Catholicism will always stand separate as Catholicism. Sardis, the fifth church. Now, Sardis represents Protestantism. Quick recap, doctrines under Constantine set up Catholicism. Out of Catholicism comes Protestantism, which is represented by Sardis or vice versa. Let's read about that. The message to Sardis is addressed to Protestantism. The period covered by Thyatira was the era of papal persecution. There we have it. God's people begin to come out of the nominal church Protestantism or Sardis to finish the Reformation. So we're referring to the Protestantism as the nominal church here. Now, all the pioneers and Ella White consistently did this. But we have only until the last century started calling ourselves, as Adventists, Protestants. But the pioneers didn't refer to themselves as Protestants. They came out of Protestantism. Protestantism. So that was the nominal church in their eyes. So we're kind of correcting ourselves on a little bit of terminology as we go through here. And I think you're going to see a lot of statements to confirm this. So let's read about this. Fifth state Sardis signifies that which remains that are ready to die. This we understand to be the present nominal church, the Babylon, she's, or, or he is, Joseph Bates is speaking of Protestantism, which God's people, not Trinitarians, which God's people come out from under the second angel's message. So what's taking place here? 
We have the second angel's message, which follows the first pretty much at the same time. What is the first angel's message? Fear God and give glory to him. Now, the first part, fear God, is what the second angel's message is addressing. As we mentioned, all religion, all doctrine starts with the God we worship. So this is the first thing that we need to get straight. Who are we worshiping here? So God's people are being called out to stand on the, with the Father and the Son. And the second angel's message is emphasizing this. Let's continue to read on and let's see what the second angel's message is saying to the nominal church. It says, and there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So what had fallen? Babylon, the great mystery. Let's read. And upon her forehead was a name written, mystery, Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now, verse 6 sounds a lot like what we were reading about in 538 A.D., doesn't it? When, when the Roman church believed that they had wiped out the last true believers of the Father and Son. Makes me think of that. What is this mystery? The mystery of the Trinity is the central doctrine of the Catholic faith. Upon it are based all other teachings of the Catholic Church. See, it's all about the God we worship. This is what it's about. Ellen White on the calling of God's people out of the nominal church. Which we're going to hear from the spirit of prophecy now. Today, as in the days of Elijah, the line of demarcation between God's commandment-keeping people and the worshipers of false gods is clearly drawn. How long halt ye before two opinions? Elijah cried, if the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the message for today is Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, come out of her, my people. The fourth angel's message is just a repeat of the second. It's all about coming out of false worship, worshiping the false God, standing on the one true God of the Bible. Because it, again, it all starts with the God we worship. Sardis, as does the churches of Philadelphia and Laodicea, go until the end of time. The message to Sardis and Philadelphia separately cover a period extending to the second coming of Christ. But in addition to the experiences portrayed in the fifth and sixth messages, that which is directed to Laodicea is applicable. So we see here not just Catholicism, but Protestantism. Are there Protestants among us today? Why, certainly, there will be Protestants among us when Christ comes. The same with Adventism. It's among us today. It will always be. And nominal Adventists, which will be the Laodicea to come, will be with us now. And in, but these churches all go separately. It's a matter of what church, what group do we stay, choose to stand within. Philadelphia, the sixth church, and this represents Adventism. Again, doctrines set up under Constantine culminate to Catholicism. Out of Catholicism comes Protestantism. They are the daughters of Catholicism. Out of Catholicism comes Adventism. And that's where we are now with the Church of Philadelphia. The Church of Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man could shut it. For thou hast little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. So we can see the Church of Philadelphia, our Adventist pioneers. They acknowledged the Father and Son, and they gave glory to them. They were doers of the word, and this is what separated them from the rest of the world. This is what made them the remnant. This is what made them that peculiar people, and this is what they preferred to be called.
This is the first angel's message. I want you to notice the similarity to this to what we just read. Fear God and give glory to him. It's that two-part proclamation here. Fear God and give glory to him. First, we must know the God we serve in order to give glory to him. Can we give glory to God while we're worshiping a false god? No. So we see the order of things. So the first angel's message go out. The second angel must go out as well to, to reinforce that first part of this message, which is fear God. The first and second angel's messages are given in 1843 and 1844. The first and second messages were given in 1843 and 1844, and we are now under the proclamation of the third. There cannot be a third without the first and second. These messages we are to give to the world, showing in the line of prophetic history the things that have been and the things that will be. And that's what we're doing here today, folks. We're covering this whole history in the order of things and what they represent. Now, we notice that in 1843 and 1844, the first and second angel's messages went out, and almost immediately after is the third angel's message. Keep that in mind, because we're going to be seeing why and what that was about very shortly. The Church of Philadelphia is a happy, holy state. The word Philadelphia signifies brotherly love and expresses the position and spirit of those who received the Advent message up to the autumn of 1844 as they came out of the sectarian churches. The spirit of God was with every true believer and his praise upon every tongue. Those who were in that movement are aware that language would fail to describe that holy, happy state. Wow, what made it such a happy, holy state? I would have loved to have been there. Could it be because Christ was coming and it was right around the corner? We're talking like a month or two out. Christ is coming. They're taking this seriously. They're selling their homes. They're returning rakes and shovels that they've borrowed for like the last five years, finally returning them. They're making things right with their brother. I'm sorry, brother. I didn't mean to say that. And the brother's like, oh, you're forgiven. Through Christ, we can do this. And that's what they were doing. Through Christ, they were preparing for the coming of Christ. It was a beautiful state. They were leaving this world behind. They didn't want anything to do with this world. There was something much better in store for them. Many leave Philadelphia returning to the golden calf. Now, what's happening here? We, are, we have this happy, holy state. And what has happened? Well, there's a great disappointment that takes place when Christ doesn't come. And many of these people just can't bear this great disappointment. What do they do? They go right back into Protestantism, right back to the golden calf, and they just throw up their hands and say, okay, forget this. I don't need this. While others, they stay true. More light is given, and Adventism continues on. But let's read about those who go back to the golden calf. The time of test for those who were looking for their Lord came in the autumn of 1844, but many who had only professed to believe in the Advent changed when time had passed, and he did not come, and now scoffed at those who still clung to that message, to the message. Fear God and give glory to him. This is the message they were rejecting. This is the message, though, that the pioneers were clinging to, for the hour of his judgment has come. The heavenly door opened, but those who turned back to the world were left in darkness. When the door in heaven opened, the doors to the Protestant churches closed. They went back into the closed door. Others returned to the flesh pots. Okay, now this is another intriguing thing here. So we have this happy, holy state. Some just throw up their hands and say, forget about the father and son. We're going back to our gods. They go back 
to the golden calf. Now we have another group that's going to the flesh pots. What is, how does that work? Well, they still believe in the father and son. They can't turn their back on the father and son. They've been convicted. They know that's a false God that they came out of. They don't want to go back to that. But they realize now Christ isn't just around the corner coming. It's, who knows? This might not even be in my laugh, lifetime. So they're thinking, oh, I love this world a little too much. I, I want the flesh pots. I, they want their cake and eat it too, basically. They really want to glorify self but, and not the Father. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. I love this, this verse because this is uh, actually uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31. And this describes the second half of the first angel's message perfectly, which is to give glory to the Father and the Son. But they refuse to. So it's the second half of the first angel's message that Laodicea does not abide to. They profess to fear God, but they really don't because they don't give glory to him. They give glory to self. They give glory to the foe of the, of, the, of the Father and Son. But let's continue on. It says, All are now being tested and proved. Many to whom precious light has been given desire to what? Return to the flesh pots of Egypt. Philadelphia passes through Laodicea. We're still in, we're seeing Laodicea come out. We're still speaking of Philadelphia here. Believers who came in during the Philadelphia experience, such as lifted the coming of the Lord, passed through the Laodicean period. You know, I'm going to pause here for a second. There's a lot of people that are confused on the Laodicea period. They, everybody, there's many people that think, oh, we're all in Laodicea. Well, we're in the time period, yes. But are we in that condition? Are we partaking? Was Ellen White a Laodicean? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. She was a Philadelphian, and she was till the day she died. In fact, her guardian angel told her that if she continued on the path she was, she would be among the 144,000. And Philadelphia and the 144,000 are one and the same. To confirm this, if you compare, actually, the scripture that we began with today, Revelation 3.12, and you compare that with Revelation 14.1, they're one and the same. They both receive the mark of God in their forehead. This is God's true people. This is what's pleasing to him. This is what Ellen White was a part of. Now, she passed through Laodicea, but she never became part of Laodicea. Let's read on. The time of the Laodicean message is one of drowsiness and peril, and the burden of the message is to escape from the Laodicean condition. So we don't want to be in Laodicea. We want to escape from it. We might be in this time period, but we don't have to be a part of it. We want to get out of this condition. The message to the final two periods of the church is one of preparation for the end. It is evident that the last two periods of the church, Philadelphia and Laodicea, cover one and the same generation. The rise of the Advent movement and the special message of preparation for the end was a, was a signal that the opening years of the closing generation had been reached. To whom was due God's final warnings? These angels are giving the final warnings. This is saying, hey, the time is now to get ready. Fear God and give glory to him. The Adventist pioneers were preparing for the coming of Christ. They were preparing for the end. We need to be doing the same. We need to get back into Philadelphia. We need to be preparing for the coming of Christ. Laodicea, the seventh church. Okay, we're down to the last church here, and Laodicea represents nominal Adventism. Why? 
They still believe in the Father and Son. They still believe in the message of amatism, but they love this world too much to let go of it. They justify sin. They don't seek to escape from sin. So Laodicea represents nominal Adventism. Again, we saw Catholicism gave birth to Protestantism, gave birth to Adventism, and now nominal Adventism is coming out of that. And Protestantism is also the nominal church. So we don't want to confuse nominal church with nominal Adventism. They are two separate things. Laodicea signifies a judging of the people from 1844 to the close of probation is the hour of God's judgment. So almost immediately after the, the great disappointment, the Laodicea starts to take off. Uh, some place it is 1845. I want to say that's Joseph Bates, uh, 1844. But right around in that area is where we what we're, what we're, has been witnessed Laodicea departing from Philadelphia to the church of Laodicea right and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans right I know thy works that thou art neither cold nor hot I would thou wert cold or hot so then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot I will spew thee out of my mouth wow those are not two kind words to Laodicea they're nauseating Laodicea is nauseating why? They acknowledge the Father and Son, but they refuse to give them glory. They refuse to give them glory. And it all comes down to our works, our works, our character, our image, who we are as a person. That's, what the, what, that's what's at the root of it. It doesn't matter if we worship the one true God or not and His only begotten Son, if our heart belongs to someone else. Laodiceans are professed followers of the Father and Son. This is what makes them nominal Adventists. Their belief is correct. Let's read about it. The Laodicean message applies to the people of who? The people of God, not the people of the Trinity, who profess to believe present truth. The term lukewarm, Laodicean, nominal Adventist, is applicable to this class. They profess to love the truth, yet are deficient in Christian fervor and devotion. Another quote. It will be observed that no fault is found with the Laodiceans on account of the doctrines they hold. They are not accused of harboring any Jezebel in their midst. What is Jezebel? The taking the knee to Baal. And as we saw, it is the Trinity worship. Now, you, this is not, the, those in Laodicea are not worshiping the Trinity. They are believers in the Father and Son. It's who they give glory to. That is their problem. The second half of the first angel's message. Let's read on. So far as we can learn from the address to them, their belief is correct and their theory sound. The inference, therefore, is that having a correct theory, therefore, they are content. They are satisfied with the correct form of doctrine without its power. How do we have a correct doctrine without its power? If you've got it all figured out, you should have the power, right? Well, let's think about that. They believe in the one true God of the Bible. They believe in his only begotten son. They believe the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. But they won't allow the Holy Spirit to truly convict them of their sin and work within them. They justify sin. They hang on to sin. They glorify self. They won't truly allow that power to work within them. Yet they claim they profess, but they don't truly allow that power to work within them. Laodiceans are professed followers of God, yet they deny Him by their works. The scriptures speak of a large class of who? Professors who are what? Not 
doers. These are the Laodiceans. Now, how close is that to the Philadelphians? They're complete opposites. They both profess to believe in the one true God. One are doers and one are not doers. Philadelphians, they believe in the Father and Son, and they are doers of the word. Laodicea, they profess to believe in the Father and Son, and they are not doers of the word. Many who claim to believe in God deny him by their works. The works denied. True faith, which relies wholly upon Christ, will be manifest by obedience to all the requirements of God. From Adam's day to the present time, the great controversy has been concerning obedience to God's law. By the scriptures declare that by works is faith made perfect, and that without the works of obedience, faith is dead. He that professes to what? No God. No God. And keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not found in him. We're seeing it here. Works, obedience, overcoming perfection. These are the divides. These are the divides from Philadelphia and Laodicea. Laodiceans believe in the spirit of Christ, but will not allow it to convict. The office of the Holy Spirit is distinctly specified in the words of Christ. When he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It is the Holy Spirit that convicts of sin. If the sinner responds to the quickening influence of the Spirit, he will be brought to repentance and aroused to the importance of obeying the divine requirements. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. It shows us our error. Using Christ as the great benchmark. We repent. We don't want that person. We don't want that sin in us. We, we want Christ to transform us into his image, away from that sin. Laodiceans lay off the armor of God. When efforts are made to set things in order and bring the people up to the position God would have them occupy, a class will be affected by the labor and will make earnest efforts to press through the darkness to the light. But many do not persevere in their efforts long enough to realize the sanctifying influence of the truth upon their lives. I'm going to pause there for a second. Does that remind us of after the great disappointment? They stopped sanctifying. The Laodiceans, they stopped sanctifying. They went on believing or professing to believe in the Father and Son, but they stopped sanctifying. They went back to their old lives. The cares of the world, as we read on, the cares of the world engross the mind to that degree that self-examination and secret prayer are neglected. I'm going to pause there again because self-examination is so important. And sadly, so many confuse that with looking to self. Because Ella White does mention looking to self. But we don't look for, to self for the power to overcome. That is the difference. We look to Christ. The Holy Spirit speaks upon our heart, brings to mind where we are faulty. We repent and we look to Christ in his righteousness for the power to overcome. We don't look for self for that power because there's none there. We look to Christ and his power. In fact, we are continually looking to Christ or we would never even get to the point of self-examination. And we need that secret prayer. We go and we repent. We don't want that in our lives. And through Christ, we truly can overcome. What we're talking about again is self-examination. And when we lay it aside, we are laying the Holy Spirit aside. And let's read on to what it says. It says the armor is laid off and Satan has free access to them, benumbing their, benumbing their, their sensibilities and causing them to be unsuspicious of his wiles. Wow, we are rejecting the Holy Spirit when we stop self-examining and we our armor is laid off and well, we know what happens. We don't want to be there. 
The third angel's message enters the biblical timeline to address Laodicea. So as we mentioned earlier, and it took us a little while to get here, but after that great disappointment, almost immediately, well, you had a whole group that went back into uh, the nominal church, and then you had another group that became nominal Adventism. And following that group, this is the ones that are ignoring the second half of the first angel's message, comes the third angel. So now the third angel comes and says, hey, now wait a minute. You're professing to believe the Father and Son. I'm not seeing that in your image. We need to, we need to stop now. <laughs> you need to start preparing. You need to go back to where you came from. And I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But this is what was being said. And here we are, third angel's message. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive the mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So it's about image, character, who we are. Now, some are going to be saying, now, wait a minute, Mr. Casey. That, that can't be, because we know the mark of the beast is Sunday worship, and the seal is, is Sabbath worship. Well, let's look at that for a minute. Let's say someone goes to church on the seventh day of the week, the biblical Sabbath, and they're faithful to that. But when they go to church, they're worshiping the Trinity. They're worshiping a false god. Are they going to receive the mark of the beast? Why, sure they will. That's something to think about. Let's also look. Let's say someone is diligently keeping the seventh-day Sabbath, and they're worshiping the Father and Son, or at least they're professing to. But in their hearts and minds, they harbor the devil. And it's revealed in their image, their works, their character, who they are as a person. Are they going to receive the mark? Why, sure they will. Why, sure they will. The image we are to have. The very image of God is to be reproduced in humanity. The honor of God, the honor of Christ, is involved in the perfection of the character. It's speaking in the second half of the first angel's message. Our image, that's how we glorify God, striving to take on that character. The striving for perfection of character. We don't want to diminish the word of perfection. We're trying to strive to the image of God. Perfection, perf this doesn't even come close to describing how perfect and glorious our Father and Son are that we are striving to. And this is our goal. We strive through Christ, through Christ working from the inside out to take on that image with a great goal set ahead of us. Ellen White on image and the third angel. In a view given June 27, 1850, 1850, I'm sorry, my accompanying angel said, Time is almost finished. Do you reflect the lovely image of Jesus as you should? Then I was pointed to the earth and saw that there would be, there would have to be a getting ready among those who have of late embraced the third angel's message. Said the angel, get ready, get ready, get ready. Ye will have to die a greater death to the world than ye have ever yet died. Ellen White on the message to the Laodicean. Young and old, God is now testing you. You are deciding your own eternal destiny, your pride, your love to follow the fashions of the world, your vain and empty conversations, your selfishness, selfishness are all put in the scale. This refers to image, our character, who we are. Many I saw were flattering themselves that they were good Christians who have not a single ray of light from Jesus. And it continues... And I saw that the Lord was wetting his sword in heaven to cut them down. Oh, that every cold, lukewarm professor, nominal Adventist, could realize the clean work that God is about to make among who? His professed people, followers of the Father and Son, not Trinitarians. 
Dear friends, do not deceive yourselves concerning your condition. You cannot deceive God, says the true witness. I know thy works. The third angel is leading up a people step by step higher and higher. At every step they will be tested. So these are professed people. Again, the church of Philadelphia and Laodicea can only be within the Seventh-day Adventist non-Trinitarian movement. For we are the believers of the Father and Son. So what about the corporate Seventh-day Adventist church or the nominal church? That's so I refer to them. I refer to the corporate nominal, the, the corporate SDA church as opposed to the Seventh-day Adventist non-Trinitarian movement. I'm calling them not the nominal church here. Why is that? Because they have gone back into Sardis. They have gone back to the nominal church of Protestantism. Have they not? And they've done it as recently as 1980 when they made the Trinity their new form of worship. They jumped ship. They are no longer the church of the Adventist pioneers. When Ellen White says that the Adventist church will never be in Babylon, they can't be. The church of Philadelphia can never be in Babylon. It will never be. They are true to God. But the corporate SDA church today does not have the same God of the pioneers. They have left. Let's read a little bit about it. The result of their murmuring and unbelief was that Aaron made them a golden calf to represent God. They've gone back to the golden calf. He proclaimed this idol to be God, and a great deal of enthusiasm was created over this false god. Is there enthusiasm in the corporate Seventh-day Adventist church, the nominal church for the Trinity? Oh, great enthusiasm. Is it the God of the pioneers? The God, the, the, the God that called the Adventist pioneers out of the nominal church? No, they've changed gods. It's a totally, they've gone back to the God of the fathers of Protestantism that our Adventist pioneers came out from under. The corporate SDA church or nominal church drink of the wine of Babylon. If we turn from the testimony of God's word and accept false doctrines, the Trinity, because our fathers taught them, we fall under the condemnation pronounced upon Babylon. We are drinking of the wine of her abominations. The corporate SDA church or nominal church returns to Sardis as, the, as sister to the daughters of Babylon. So now we have a name for it. So they're not a, they are not the daughters of Babylon. They are a sister to the daughters of Babylon. They are being adopted back into the family. We must, as a people, arouse and cleanse the camp of Israel. We are in danger of becoming a sister to fallen Babylon and allowing our churches to become corrupt. I'm going to pause here for a second. Do you think that the church, the corporate SDA church, is more or less corrupt than on the day when Ellen White wrote this in 1886, actually? I don't think there's anyone among us that truly believes that the church is less corrupt. There might be some, but for the most part, I think we all could agree that the corporate SDA church is more corrupt now than then. And that answers our question for the most part. But let's read on, and I want you to really pay attention to the next part. And filled with every foul spirit, a cage for every unclean and hateful bird. I want you to remember that, because we're going to be reading about the fourth angel's message here, which is a repeat of the second, which is sounding here. And who it's sounding to, it says, filled with every foul spirit in a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. So who qualifies as Babylon? Babylon is said to be the mother of harlots. As we said, the mother of harlots will always be, in Revelation 17, referring to Catholicism. By her daughters must be symbolized churches that cling to her doctrines. Has the corporate SDA church gone back to those doctrines? 
Why, sure they have. And traditions. And following her example of sacrificing the truth and the approval of God in order to form an unlawful alliance with the world. Therefore, it cannot refer to the Roman church alone, for that church has been in a fallen condition for many centuries. Wow. The fourth angel's message goes out to the nominal church and all who are on Babylon. The same with the third angel's message. It's all who believe in the one true God and his only begotten Son, but are not given glory. These messages go out to and after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lighted with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon, the great is fallen, is fallen, has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Sounds like the sister to the daughters of Babylon. Fourth angel's message is screaming to the corporate SDA church, please come out of her, my people. Now, we've been going back to the golden calf for many, many, many decades. And the fourth angel's message has been crying to these people. Is it swelling to a loud voice now? It truly is. It truly is. People, we need to make a stand on the Father and the Son and come out of her, my people. The fourth angel's message is a repeat of the second. And this message does come from the Father and His only begotten Son. This is the same message that was given by the second angel. Babylon is fallen because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. What is that wine? Her false doctrines. And what is the central doctrine? The Trinity. With all religions, the central doctrine is always the God of worship. Ellen White and the Evidence Pioneers would not be allowed to join the corporate SDA church of today. Wow. Let's read about that. Most of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventism would not be able to join the church today if they had to subscribe to the denomination's fundamental beliefs. More specifically, most would not be able to agree to belief number two, which deals with the doctrine of the Trinity. That was George Knight from Ministry Magazine. How many of us are being kicked out of the corporate Seventh-day Adventist church because we believe in the Father and Son, because we believe that the Adventist pioneers believed? Sadly, that's, the, that's where we're at right now. This is the fourth angel's message screaming. Come make that stand. Come make that stand. Stand with the Father and Son. Time is short. We need to be preparing for the end. We don't want to be found. We don't want to be found as a sister to the daughter of Babylon when Christ comes. We want to be with the church standing on the hill. Now this next one. God calls to the sisters to the daughters of Babylon to come out of her, then calls them to stand on Philadelphia. We're going to be talking about three churches here in this next statement. Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Sardis is the nominal church. This is what the corporate SDA church has gone back to as a sister to the daughter of Babylon. Then we have Laodicea, which are nominal Adventists. They still believe in the Father and Son, or profess to, but their hearts belong to another. They, they love this world too much to let go. Then we have Philadelphia, the one true church of God. Let's read about this. Because the other two, one remains true, the church on the hill. Other two are cut off. And where do they go? Lake of fire. Let's read about it. In all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. God will bring the third part through the fire and refine them. They shall call upon him, and he will hear them. He will say, it is my people, and they shall say, the Lord is my God. First part, Sardis, 
the nominal church, or Babylon. Second part, Laodicea, the nominal Adventists. Third part, Philadelphia, the only true church of God on earth. In the name of Jesus, I exhort you again to flee from the Laodiceans as from Sodom and Gomorrah. Wow, Joseph Bates says it how it is there. He's referring to Sodom and Gomorrah. What happens to Sodom and Gomorrah? They are destroyed by fire. That's what's going to happen to these two parts when they're cut off. They're going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Their teachings are false and delusive and lead to utter destruction. Death, death, eternal death is on their track. Remember Lot's wife. My friends, we do not want to be found among the Laodiceans when Christ comes in the clouds of glory. Laodiceans shaken out. Many will be reproved for the sins mentioned in the Laodicean message. And such reproofs unheeded will cause those to be shaken out who are unwilling to receive the reproof of the Spirit. That's what we were saying earlier. They, we're, they will not allow the Holy Spirit to truly convict them of their sin and repent. And through Christ, through Christ, transform into the image of Him. That is where we are striving to be. The straight truth to the Laodicean brings about the shaking. I asked the meaning of the shaking I had seen and was shown that it would be caused by the straight testimony called forth by the counsel of the true witness to the Laodiceans. Some will not bear this straight testimony. They will rise up against it. And this will cause a shaking among who? God's people. Folks, that shaking is right here in the Seventh-day Adventist non-Trinitary movement. And we're hearing about what divides. It's about works, our image, our character, who we are, perfection. It's about taking on the image of Christ. It's about leaving this world behind, not justifying sin, escaping through Christ from sin. If you want to test this theory, if you want to go speak in certain circles and you speak about works, perfection, overcoming obedience, that sin is the transgression of the law. You watch. People will rise up against it. People will rise up against it. The third angel's message must do its work. The third angel's message must do its work of separating from the churches a people who will take their stand on the platform of truth. It doesn't say anything about a hybrid church, something that's comprised of Philadelphia and Laodicea, or some eighth church. There's only one church to stand. There's only one truth to stand. Let's read the next quote. It says, There are to be but two classes upon the earth, the obedient children of who? Of God, not the Trinity, and the disobedient. That's what it comes down to. And he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats, and he shall set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. God is separating. It's just a matter of where will we stand? Will we listen to the third and fourth angel's messages? Where are those of Laodicea to flee to? Jesus still loves some that are in the Laodicean church and calls on them to repent, to repent. If they were deceived by false teachers, they must leave them as soon as possible and be zealous and repent for everyone that is found in that state when Jesus leaves the sanctuary and ceases to plead for the honest ones among them will be destroyed. They must get back into the open door into, in the Philadelphia church that no man could shut where they came from. For that is the only true church or place of safety. This is where we need to be, my friends. 
This is where we need to be. We need to be striving through Christ, preparing for the coming of Christ. To which class of professors do we honestly stand? There have ever been two classes among those who profess to be followers of Christ. While one class study the Savior's life and earnestly seek to correct their defects and conform to the pattern, the other class shun the plain practical truths which expose their errors. This is so perfectly describes these two groups within the Seventh-day Adventist non-Trinitarian movement. One is striving through Christ to overcome, striving for that image. The other is justifying sin. They're seeking justification, rejecting the power of the Holy Spirit. At last, we must all stand in one church or the other. We are living in an age when the law of God is made void. Deceptive errors prevail at, to an alarming degree. Multitudes forgetting that sin is the transgression of the law are following the lead of the great lawbreaker, the man of sin. But genuine faith has not become extinct. There are two parties. At the last, we must all stand in one party or the other. And in which company do we wish to be found when Jesus shall come in the clouds of heaven? And that's where we're at, my friends. There's just one church down that long, narrow road sitting on that hill. And this is my plea for you. Please heed the third and fourth angel's message. Adhere to the both parts of the first angel's message. Fear God and give glory to him. Time is nearly up. Soon Christ will be coming. And in which church will we be found? We're going to end with the scripture that we opened with. It says, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To those who can, may we kneel for closing prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this message today, dear Lord. And I pray that you will be with everyone that has heard this message. Dear Lord, give them the courage, the strength, the faith to listen to the third and fourth angel's message, dear Lord, and make that stand. Dear Lord, may we step out of, may we step out of the nominal church. Make that stand on the true church. And when we land here, dear Lord, in the Seventh-day Adventist non-Trinitarian movement, may we make that one more step. May we take that one more step and stand with the Church of Philadelphia that we might be found worthy when your precious Son comes in the clouds of glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Standing on the Platform of Truth Pioneer and missions.